FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. It's Thursday, March 25th. I'm Bill Nygut, and so happy to have you all with us. We're going to um, take on a special topic on today's show and have two remarkable guests who will help walk us through our conversation. I'll introduce everybody in just a moment. But let me start by, by making a couple of remarks. You know, we tend to hear about the horrifying toll that guns take when we're confronted with mass shootings, like what happened, of course, in North Georgia, um, eight people killed in massage parlor shootings, uh, and then just days later in Boulder, Colorado, where 10 people were killed by a lone gunman um, in a um, supermarket. And um, we think about guns, especially at those moments, but the fact of the matter is the real toll that guns take on American life is um, a little bit undercover. So let me just give you some basic data. In 2020, gun violence killed nearly 20,000 Americans. 24,000 more people died of suicide by guns in 2020. Gunshot injuries uh, amounted to some 40,000 in 2020. Um, according to a study cited by the Washington Post, 100 Americans are killed by guns every day. That includes suicides. And if all that weren't enough, in 2020, Americans purchased 23 million guns. That's a 64% increase over 2019. Those are the figures we don't tend to hear about guns in everyday life, and they'll play a big part in the conversation that we have today. So um, first of all, it's Thursday. My partner on today's show is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss himself, Kevin Riley. Kevin, I'm very happy that we're doing the show today and so glad you're with me to talk about it. Yeah, Bill, I, uh, it's good to see you and uh, be with you again, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this show. Um, uh, we've been talking about it for a while, of course, and now we've got these two terrific guests and this topic, which is so, unfortunately, so very timely. Um, we are going to talk about this with first Dr. Mark Rosenberg. Those of you who listen to the show have heard Mark Rosenberg before. He is the president emeritus of the Task Force for Global Health. He was the startup president of the organization. Um, and in this context, we're going to be talking with Mark about work he started as long ago as the mid-1990s, when, Mark, you were the head, uh, was it called injury control and prevention in the days that you were in charge? It was called injury control, and it looked at two types of injuries, intentional injuries or violence, and unintentional injuries that people used to call accidents. But yes, we, and we were should, doing and, that. And, and it actually started and, in and, the mid-80s. Okay, um, thank you for that correction. We're going to talk about what happened uh, to you when you... Um, we're doing research on gun violence in the United States. It's an important part of the conversation we'll have today. And we're also joined today by um, 
the former Chief Justice of the Arkansas State Supreme Court, the Honorable Betty Dickey. Betty Dickey's had a remarkable career in Arkansas. Um, um, Justice Dickey, you were the first woman prosecuting attorney in the state of Arkansas, and then uh, broke more ground when Republican Governor Mike Huckabee later named you to become the first female chief justice of the state Supreme Court. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, that is correct. Um, th- the two of you um, come together, uh, Mark and, and uh, Justice Dickey, uh, because of a relationship, your former uh, deceased husband, Jay Dickey, a member of the uh, U.S. House, um, and you, Mark Rosenberg, got to know each other in a very strange way. And I'd like you to tell us a little about the story with me just setting it up briefly. In 1996, when CDC was doing research that you led into uh, incidents of gun violence, um, Jay Dickey was your biggest nemesis on Capitol Hill. He proposed an amendment that was backed by the NRA that would prevent uh, CDC. You could still do gun research, but you were not allowed to use it uh, the data that you found to advocate for any kind of gun safety, gun control measures. That's how the relationship began, isn't it, Mark? It is how it started. And I would say we started as each other's nemesis, um, near mortal enemies, because we had started at the request of a visionary director of CDC, Bill Fage. He said, let's look at what public health can contribute to preventing gun violence. And so we started doing research on gun violence because we thought science could contribute a tremendous amount to solving this problem. And we did the research, the NRA didn't like it, and they thought that they needed to stop it by any means possible. So they started telling their members It's either the research or keep your guns. And if you allow them to do the research, you will lose all of your guns. That's where it will inevitably end up. This was a brilliant strategy for the NRA, but it was a devastating strategy for our country. And in 1996, David Satcher, then the director of CDC, and I went to an appropriations hearing that was led by this congressman from Arkansas, Jay Dickey. Um, He was a little bit different from me. He was from rural Arkansas. He was a lifelong member of the NRA, and he was a a born-again Christian. And uh, I was this Jewish kid from the Northeast trying to do research to prevent gun violence. And the, the hearing was really an ambush. Jay was given questions by the NRA, and he they included statements I was alleged to have made, statements that were taken out of context or just not true. And it was a disaster. It was so bad. Jay was asked by the NRA to lead this attack on CDC to help stop the research. It was so bad that my bosses at CDC said, don't you ever, ever talk to that congressman again. It'll be like pouring gas on a fire. But uh, I got a call from his legislative assistant a couple weeks later who said he wanted to go over the data 
that we had presented at the hearing. And my bosses said, you can go up there and you can talk to the legislative assistant, but don't forget you are not allowed at all to talk to the congressman. So I went up, we had a very nice talk, and he was really interested in the data. Then as I was leaving, he said, oh, by the way, the congressman is in his office and he wants to say hello to you. Well, I gulped hard and I said something I probably shouldn't repeat here. But I said, what should I do? Either I don't talk to him and I'm rude and I make things worse, or I talk to him and I get fired. But I did go in and we started talking and we started talking about the pictures on his wall, which were pictures of his children. We talked about his kids and my kids and we actually had a good talk. We didn't talk at all about guns. And the next thing I knew, he invited my son and his whole class for a personal tour of Congress. And that began a relationship. We actually started talking. We started to get to know each other. We started to like each other and trust each other. So, yes, it was an extraordinary relationship. And it, it was one where it enabled us to work out a way forward by understanding each of our positions. We were able to figure out how we could get out of this deadlock. Jay taught me that we need to say we're not looking to take guns away from law-abiding gun owners. That, in fact, one of the objectives of the research should be to find things that don't infringe on the rights of law-abiding gun owners and at the same time reduce gun violence. Justice Dickey, let me bring you in, and then, Kevin, I, I want to get you into this conversation. I think what um, Mark Rosenberg just said is terribly important to this conversation. Um, there are people especially, um, I think, on the NRA side, who like to think of uh, talking about gun safety measures, gun control measures, as a zero-sum game. You're either, you either want guns in people's hands or you want to take them all away. But your former uh, husband, Jay Dickey, uh, came to an understanding that he could work with someone like a Mark Rosenberg and help Mark understand that, in fact, the last, the one thing you don't want to do as you look at gun safety measures is scare people into believing you're after their weapons. And that's, that's still the sentiment, I think, among many people who support gun control measures today. Yes, I still talk to people today who said they're coming, you know, with this change in administration, they're coming for our guns, um, you know intelligent people and but jay came to understand that research into gun violence was not advocacy for gun control and and several of our members in congress now such as tom cotton realizes that it, research it is worthwhile you know and it is not advocacy that there is a difference uh all of our our delegation Congressional delegation uh, are, you know, supported, funded in, in some part by the NRA. Uh, but we've all come to understand that, and Jay did. Um, Jay did, and, and uh, as Mark has indicated, not just Jay, but the rest of the family became good friends with Mark. And uh, Mark helped our younger daughter, uh, Rachel, get her first job when she hmm. got out of college. So it, and, and Mark spoke at Jay's funeral, 
2017. Mm-hmm. So it's been an that interesting was- transition as as all of us have become have come to understand the value of research as far as gun violence, and I'm uniquely um, in you know involved in that. Yeah, so I want to talk to you about your, some of your personal experiences in a minute, but Kevin, why don't we give you a chance to weigh in? Mark, uh, going back to what you described in your meeting and some of what uh, the Chief Justice recounted, is it not that a classic technique in conflict resolution? I mean, when we read about and learn about uh, even some of the most troubling conflicts in, in our history, it's, it's when people can get together and sometimes talk about anything but the thing they disagree about in order to build trust. Was there a moment when you, you just felt like, oh, my gosh, I can work with this guy? It's a really good question, Kevin. I think it evolved over time. We started talking at, at that first visit, and we started to see that we shared a lot of values. Our children were really important to us. Our children had some of the same issues, and we talked about those, how we were working with them and supporting them. And over time, we came to know each other and appreciate each other. And it was after that, after we came to trust each other, that we started talking about this problem of gun violence. And I think Jay came to see that science really could contribute to this. After the Aurora shooting, um, we spoke to each other and President Obama had said, this kind of mass killing is crazy. What Jay and I said is, this kind of mass killing is very predictable. If you allow people with paranoid schizophrenia, unlimited access to guns and ammunition, it's very predictable. It's not crazy. What's crazy is to do nothing about it. And that brought us even closer together. But you're right. We found ways to get close, to give each other a chance to explain and to understand where we were each coming from. Mark, um, I, I want to try to frame this conversation uh, around a couple of uh, things that I think some people might find on, on, on odd. Um, you think of gun violence as a public health issue. Now, that may seem self-evident that obviously if people are being shot by guns, it's a health issue. Um, but to call it a public health issue and then to say that research on gun violence, much as uh, the CDC was doing research on auto accidents and why people were killed and injured in auto accidents, um, may seem like a little bit of a leap. How are those two inter- how do those two intersect? And um, what can research help under- help us understand that could curb gun violence? It's a really good question, Bill, because I think most people don't think that research has anything to do with ending gun violence. When we started looking at this as a public health problem at CDC in the 80s, we looked at what had been done in the area of road traffic crashes. In the 60s, there was an epidemic of young people being killed by crashes on our highways in such high numbers that the government said, we've got to stop this. We've got to put an end to it. And the way they decided to do it was by appropriating $200 million for research on motor vehicle crashes. 
and by starting the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA. And every year since then, since 1970, they have put $200 million into research. And that research has yielded extraordinary findings. They totally redesigned the car. They developed front-end impact protection, side impact protection, rollover protection. They developed airbags, front airbags, head airbags, knee airbags. They made roads safer. They made drivers safer. And as a result of that research, we have saved, since 1970, more than 600,000 lives from road traffic crashes. So we saw that science could be really effective. And in injury control, there were two main types of injuries that were taking the lives of Americans, car crashes and guns. We looked at how much was being spent to save lives from car crashes, $200 million a year. And we looked at how much was being spent by the government to save lives from gun deaths, almost zero. So we said, let's start doing the research because science can help us save lives from gun death, just like it saved lives from car crashes. So research has tremendous things to offer. Unfortunately, when the Dickey Amendment was passed after that showdown at the Congressional Corral, um, the Dickey Amendment put a real chill on gun violence prevention research. It didn't say you can't do research but what it said is you can't promote or advocate for gun control. And congressmen and senators have the power to write letters to your bosses. And so they wrote to our boss at CDC and they said, hey, you people are doing advocacy and promotion of gun control. You've got to stop that. But we weren't doing that at all. They knew we weren't doing that. But to answer a congressional inquiry, can take weeks or months of work, not only for us, but for researchers and academia. So it sent a real chill over this research. And as a result, the research at CDC after 1999 decreased by 90% on gun violence research. There's yeah. a very brave and committed group of researchers at CDC who continue to do some of that. And David Thatcher as director continued to do that and had our back. But it came to a halt until two years ago. It was stopped. Yeah, we should say, by the way, you lost your job as a result of that confrontation over the issue of um, of uh, gun research at CDC. Um, Justice Dickey, uh, and then Kevin, please weigh in. Um, you, as a prosecuting attorney, certainly came in. You saw. You grew up. I think you grew up. In a in a, a a part of Arkansas where guns were part of daily life, am I am I right about that? Your family, I mean, they were used for whatever hunting and other purposes. They were kind of an, a a part of your life day to day. Am I right about that? That's correct, but that applies to basically all of Arkansas. Yes, <laughs> yes. But then, as a prosecuting attorney, um, you saw firsthand a re some really horrifying examples of. Of gun violence and I think if, if you just could take a couple of minutes I think I'm right you were appointed as a special prosecutor to investigate the um, uh, 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 the case of Heath Stocks 
who at the at the behest of a scoutmaster named Charles Jack Walls actually murdered his entire family. Walls, a Boy Scout leader who was abusing uh, people in his troop, and told he stocks to kill his family. Have I got that story right? Most of it, yes. Uh, they <laughs> chose me as special prosecutor because, well, partly because I was the only woman in the elected prosecuting attorney in the state. I was the first and only at that time. Um, and I was not, this was after uh, he stocks had, and no one knew why, killed his whole family. Uh, so within the, you know, that was in January. And in the fall, they had asked me to be a special prosecutor of Jack Wall, Kevin, who uh, um, they had learned, had, uh, and we had interviewed Jack Walls was from a prominent small community. Uh, his father was a judge. He was a, a supervisor at Remington Arms, so he had easy access to lots of ammunition. He was a Boy Scout leader who uh, we believe molested between 50 and 100 young, 10 years old and up young boys uh, over a period of years. We interviewed 50. And uh, he, he had taught them to shoot. He had uh, taught them how to uh, avoid being caught if they were stalking uh, someone, as they did. Um, he uh, sexually molested them, um, taught them about sex, gave them alcohol, pornographic literature, all the things that no loving parent would ever want their child to have to go through but no one knew he he managed to create such fear in these young boys by telling them if they told he would kill their parents particularly his nephew his nephew who after he had molested him and his brother um was it in psychiatric counseling for a year and kept drawing two sets of parents but but i digress he Jack uh, taught them um, so many uh, behaviors, um, told them um, if they had a problem to fix it, if they couldn't fix it, to kill it. So he was actually molesting them and gaining their uh, uh, fear and respect and a closer connection with him than they had with their own parents uh, so that they would, uh, he was programming them to kill for him. You know, he oh had young, innocent minds. He had easy access to the weapons and the ammunition. And uh, when he stocks, parents found out about his relationship with Jack. Jack said, you have a problem. You know what to do and apparently followed Heath over to his parents' house where he he killed his sister who had just gotten a college scholarship to Rhodes in Memphis, killed his father and his mother. Uh, there's some question about if Heath w was not able to do it, whether or not Jack or someone else had done it. But anyway, it, it, was, the, it was the most evil, 
sadistic uh, behavior I'd seen. Uh, if I could have asked for the death penalty for Jack Walls, I would have. Um, uh, Kevin, a, an example of uh, gun violence um, at its its very worst, Kevin. Well, yeah, and and uh, I think the Chief Justice is recounting obviously a horrible case and. One of the things about these mass shootings is that, depending on our circumstance, we all uh, remember some of them very vividly. Of course, we just had a horrible situation in Atlanta, which has affected all of us who who, who work and live here. Um, I, I was reflecting the other day because it's just about two years since the mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio, which, uh, I, as, as you know, I spent much of my life. And I think, Mark, I'm going to say something here, and I invite you to, to you know, test its truth and talk about it, which is the, real, the mass shootings are horrific and, as you said, predictable. But it is in those moments where people want something done um, and where the – I think the distorted debate, as you have termed it in some of what, 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 what I think you've said, is sort of at its worst. So talk about that. I mean – isn't the real reason we, we don't really know enough about what causes this gun violence uh, because we don't have the research. And despite the urgency people feel to, feel to act, there's no agreement on how to act. It's a good point, Kevin. And people don't understand a few things about mass shootings. Mass shootings get a lot of attention, but they're only 1% of all the shooting deaths. One percent of the gun deaths are mass shootings, and that's what gets almost all the attention. And in part, the reason that the other deaths don't get attention is that most of the victims of gun homicide are young black men. They don't have much political clout. They don't have much of a voice. And most of the victims of gun suicide are people with mental illness. We don't listen to them. We stigmatize them and cast them aside so that the bulk of gun deaths don't provoke and generate as much attention as these mass shootings. but And these mass shootings have actually increased over the last decade, both in terms of frequency and number. And there's some theories and some speculation as to why they've increased. But we do need to understand them much better. And we can prevent them. I mean, the worst thing is fatalism. But we can prevent these mass shootings and we can prevent the others if we understand them better. That's the beauty of science. Um, I've got to get to the first break of the show, and we'll continue uh, our conversation on the other side. I'll, I'll make one point based on uh, something that you just said, Dr. Rosenberg. In uh, Just looking at the city of Atlanta, um, in 2020, the Atlanta Police Department investigated 157 homicides, which was up, by the way, from 99 the year before. 80% or 121 of the victims of those homicides were black men, just to make the point that you're talking about. Those aren't mass killings. Those are the day-to-day killings that don't get the attention that we see when these horrific mass shootings take place. We'll be back with more on Political Rewind in just a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're talking about uh, guns, gun violence uh, today with our two very special guests, the former Chief Justice of the Arkansas State Supreme Court, Betty Dickey, and uh, her ally over the years, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, the um, former president and now president emeritus of the Task Force for Global Health, but um, who back in the 80s and 90s was um, a leading official at the Centers for Disease Control where he worked on, among other things, gun violence and lost his job when Congress, when Betty Dickey's former uh, unfortunately deceased husband uh, passed an amendment which would prevent CDC from using any of its research to try to uh, lobby uh, Congress for gun law changes. And of course, Kevin Riley, my partner on the Thursday show, is with us as well. Um, Chief Justice Dickey, you can't take politics out of uh, gun uh, issues about guns. Um, some 70 percent of Americans typically say in studies that in a general way, they approve of some gun control measures. Uh, certainly background checks is very popular among many Americans. But like we in Georgia, you live in a state where um, the, the gun users have an enormous, um, uh, lo- have a very loud voice in making sure that there is no progress on, on gun laws. I've got, I think I'm correct in that. Yes, you're absolutely correct. But as the, there have been more and more school shootings, um, such as ours in Jonesboro, Columbine, Sandy Hook, in Florida, Colorado, Georgia, Atlanta, um, you know, the, it, you sense a change in people's attitudes, uh, particularly women, um, but also, you know, as far as trying to protect children. So I, I sense a change, and, you know, the, our delegation is willing to say, yes, we need research into gun violence. A question for you, uh, Chief Justice, and then I guess Mark could follow up as well, is it's very uh, clear that the NRA uh, is somewhat crippled these days after uh, some scandals and difficulties. From where you sit, trying to get people to understand this problem more deeply, is that good or bad or not a factor that they're in bad shape because they were such a loud voice on the other side of any any thought of of um, gun violence research or anything like that. Well, it's certainly good that they are, are less able to exercise complete control over Congress as far as legislation, or particularly when it was a Republican Congress. Um, so that that's good that that they that they've weakened. But Mark, let me let me add something to that. Um, it is true that Kevin is correct. Obviously, the NRA is having significant um, problems right now. But but a point that's made often in these debates is that you, if you want better gun laws, you can't blame NRA. You've got to look at the fact that we as citizens keep electing to Congress and to state legislatures members who who reject uh, gun control measures. So. To an extent, even when 70% of people say, yeah, we'd like some gun control measures, they continue to elect legislators who oppose them. Let let me go back to this issue of the NRA and how 
action has been blocked. And I think the reason it's been blocked is that the NRA has told people, they told their members, they told senators and congressmen that if you do the research, you'll lose all your guns. And this is still out there in their minds. Let me tell you a story. After Sandy Hook, President Obama put Biden in charge of a task force that was charged with reporting actions that could be taken to prevent similar school shootings and mass shootings. Biden's task force listed 23 different actions, and President Obama picked universal background checks as the one thing that he thought they could really do, because he said more than 70 percent of the American people, even a majority of NRA members, supported this. And what President Obama said, there is no reason we can't get this done. No reason. But they didn't get anything done. And there was a reason. And that's what Jay Dickey and I set out to explain, that this dichotomous choice that the NRA had given people, either science or keep your guns, was to blame and behind it. And what we said is, hey, people, look, science can find strategies that both protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners, protect gun rights, and reduce gun violence. It's not a dichotomous choice. And there are a number of things that will do both. Universal background checks will do both. Waiting periods will do both. Extreme risk protective orders, red flag orders, will do both. It's not either or. So what happened right now, the response to President Biden when he pushed for universal background checks again, is that the Senate Majority Leader right now, Mitch McConnell, said, I support reducing gun violence, but universal background checks don't work. That's why I'm not going to support that. We don't know. We don't know for sure if they work or not. We haven't done the science, but we can. And we can enlist both Republicans and Democrats behind that. We've put in minuscule amounts into research so far. It's really important that we got a foot in the door and started with $25 million. But compared to what we spent on motor vehicle crashes, we're just starting. We can get the answer. We can show Mitch McConnell whether it really does or doesn't work. And I, I think right now, the American people should be enthralled and in love with science. Look what it did for the pandemic. It developed these vaccines. It put light at the end of the tunnel. It's also a light at the end of this tunnel. Let me uh, ask, let me put this question to both of you, and I'll start with the Chief Justice. Uh, if you believe, and I think you both do, that research can answer some important questions, Give each of you give me one question you would most love to have the answer to as it pertains to gun violence, assuming you could get all the research money that you wanted and you could get that answer. What would it be? Uh, I think having better mental health access. How do we do that? Um, because, you know, there were red flags with most of these mass shooters. Uh, and... No one 
intervened. The mother even supported the child's predilection to assault weapons in Sandy Hook. Um, how do you get how do you get access to that? I mean, background checks are are good, and I think I read seventy seven percent of the people agree with that. But I, I see the problems there. We can't even talk about again about banning assault weapons because uh, then that they thought you know they the gun owners assume that you're coming for the rest of their guns if you do that. But that should be done. I'm sorry. Mark, I even... If you if you ask me what questions to ask, I would say let's ask the question: What works? to both protect the rights of law-abiding gun owners and to reduce gun violence. Find a set of strategies. Here's $200 million, a gift from the Republicans and Democrats who want to know, but what works to do both of these? What will satisfy the gun owners and the gun control folks? What will work for really gun safety? We all want that. It's all of our kids at risk. But that's the simple question. What works? Find out for us. Come back and tell us. Mark, I do think we, it, it, we should point out that um, despite the fact that CDC, for ever, ever since the, you know, the J. Dickey, Mark Rosenberg showdown, CDC was not getting funded for pursuing uh, research on gun violence. But we should point out that in 2019, when Trump was president— uh, certainly a pro-NRA president, for the first time in two decades, uh, the feds gave CDC $25 million for uh, gun research. Now, I get the fact that that's a drop in the bucket compared to the $200 million you were talking about was going into uh, uh, automobile uh, accidents and the like. But it was a sign that there's more of an appetite for, re for research again in Congress, isn't it? That $25 million was huge. It was a small amount, but a huge step forward. And again, this is thanks to Jay Dickey, because for years, people had been saying that you couldn't do research and we should get rid of the Dickey Amendment. The Dickey Amendment did not prohibit research, but it said the money that comes to CDC has to be used for research. It can't be used to promote or advocate gun control. And so for years, people thought that was the blockage. What Jay suggested is, whoa, no, this was an obstacle in the past, in 1996 when he passed it. But 20 years later, this was a bridge. It was the way forward because this gave cover to Republicans and people from gun-loving states who want to keep CDC from promoting gun control, they could say to their constituents, hey, we're giving money to CDC, but because of the Dickey Amendment, you can be absolutely certain it won't be used to promote or advocate gun control. So Jay and I started trying to convince people in Congress, keep the Dickey Amendment, put some money into this. And the subcommittee appropriations chair Rosa DeLauro saw the wisdom of this. 
the prior year, every single Democrat had signed up to get rid of the Dickey Amendment, every single Democrat. But Rosa DeLauro led people. She saw what Jay had been advocating. And Betty wrote testimony that was incredibly powerful for this and said, keep the Dickey Amendment, but start doing the research, start it up again. And it passed. And Rosa DeLauro said that she passed an appropriations bill of $1.4 trillion. But for her, the most important part was this $25 million for gun violence prevention research that was going to CDC and NIH. It was a big deal. Justice Dickey, so you were deeply involved in that effort. Because of Mark's health, yes, I was. And I, I knew peripherally what Jay and Mark were doing, but I was busy prosecuting criminals and and then as a, as a... Chief Justice Dickey, uh, let me ask you this. Um, it, you, you described a little bit uh, the characteristics of, of folks in Arkansas, and we know a little bit about what folks are like in Georgia. Do you think people there can accept, uh, and if so, what persuades them that this is a public health issue as opposed to, you know, it being framed as a political or Second Amendment, you know, or issue? I mean, do people buy into that idea? I think they will if you appeal to them knowing that their children are going to school and do they want to find research that will help us identify those people who are mentally unstable and have easy access to weapons. So the appeal for them, I think for Arkansans and uh, your fellow Georgians, is uh, it's for, to protect your children. I mean, because they're seeing it more and more often. Um, I know, Mark Rosenberg, you want to weigh in on the mental health aspects of this, but let me do this. I'm late to get to our final break of the show. We'll do that when we come back with more on Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, and former Chief Justice of the Arkansas State Supreme Court, Betty Dickey, our guest today. We're talking about guns. Uh, I want to say very quickly uh, that uh, uh, President Biden is expected during his 115 news conference this afternoon, which we will, of course, carry on uh, GPB uh, uh, platforms, uh, is expected to issue an executive order to about gun violence. We'll see exactly what kind of background checks he's going to call for in an executive order and the like. And um, the U.S. Senate is looking at two bills that have come over from the House, H.R. 8, which is a bipartisan background check. It's called the Bipartisan Background Check Act, although it's only got a few Republicans on it. What it would do is it would extend background checks to private gun sales and to uh, 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 gun shows uh, where they're not required And then there's H.R. 1446, which would close the so-called Charleston loophole, um, which may have prevented Dylan Roof from the massacre that he committed in Charleston at Mother Emanuel Church, because the the law now says that if the FBI doesn't process a background check within three days, then the sale uh, can go forward. Neither of those are expected to get very far uh, in the Senate. Uh, But we'll talk about those on a political show uh, coming up. 
for now, Mark Rosenberg, you're concerned, and, and uh, Justice Dickey certainly mentioned it uh, herself with the mental health aspects of gun uh, violence. I think they are really, really important, Bill. And just want to clear up a couple of things. I could not agree more with Betty that our mental health system, a really fragmented non-system, is terrible. We do a terrible job of providing adequate mental health services for people who need them. I think with respect to mass shootings and gun violence, we also need to clarify a couple of issues about mental illness. First of all, people think about mental illness as a dichotomous choice. Either you're mentally ill or you're not. And there's all different degrees. There's all different types of diagnostic categories. It's much more complex than that. And a problem with a simplistic view is that people think, oh, if this person is mentally ill, that was the cause of this mass shooting. In fact, Shootings, all shootings, and mass shootings as well, are usually have multiple risk factors, multiple issues involved. So it's not was the shooter in Atlanta, was he mentally ill or not? I mean, it's hard to think of someone who will kill eight people in a single day as being sane and normal, or someone who thinks that the way to prevent your sexual addiction is to kill other people. That's not normal thinking. But mental illness doesn't explain everything. And it's not either he was mentally ill or he was anti-Asian. These are complex issues and multiple risk factors come into play in all of these. So yes, we need a much better mental health system. We also need better ways to make people with serious mental illness visible to the system that will allow them to have guns or not have guns. And sometimes a waiting period may force the issue. If the shooter in Atlanta had had to wait for a week, and instead of being able to get his gun the same day, if he had to wait for a week, he may have talked to people and complained to people, and we may have spotted, here's a person at risk, the same in Boulder. But we've got to do a better job of treating a better job of understanding and identifying people at risk. Kevin? You know, Bill, um, as a journalist, uh, the, when these tragedies happen with mass shootings or we report on all the gun violence, especially over the past year in Atlanta, it can just seem so hopeless and in, such an intractable problem. But this conversation makes me optimistic, as another conversation did in 2012, on the day after the uh, uh, theater shooting in Colorado, I happened to be on a family trip to Ireland, and I spent that morning at the Irish Times with uh, some journalism colleagues. And that story was the biggest story in Ireland that day, which really surprised me. I mean, it was obviously a terrible and tragic story. And when I, st when I asked them why, they talked about the troubles in Ireland and how many guns there were in Ireland and how they found a way to make peace and actually eliminate guns, uh, and that it had become such a less violent country. And they were fascinated and concerned about America's problem. And, but deep underneath that conversation, they believed it could be solved, as, it, as many things had been solved in Ireland. And so I think what we've heard from the Chief Justice and Mark 
can make us all believe there's a path forward on this where we all can understand it better and we can be a better country. Um, well, thank you for those positive words, uh, Kevin Riley, as we come down to about the last four minutes of the show. But I do want to make a point about these two House bills that are now in the well, being held in the breast of, of the U.S. Senate. Um, and Betty Dickey, it, it's, an, it, it's an interesting issue to look at. Both H.R. 8 and H.R. 1446, when you look at fact-checking on studies that have been done about expanding background checks, closing the Charleston loophole, I, I, don't th- I think part of the issue is that without more research from organizations like CDC, they're simply, I was looking at factcheck.org on both of these measures, and what studies have been done suggest that these bills might have some impact. But the fact is there's no reason to believe they're going to shut down gun violence in a significant way, and we need more research to determine that. Does that make sense, Justice Dickey? Absolutely. You know, it is one small step, but it is significant. And, uh, no, we can't do it this year, but, you know, we can move forward, especially with the mental I mean, when when you're letting people out of prison who've never had any mental evaluation or or a treatment, you know, you're exacerbating the problem. So yes, it would help. Mark Rosenberg, in terms of uh, closing the Charleston loophole, um, here's what Fact Check Org said about that: In 2018, there were about 4,000 guns that got into the hands of people who should not have been allowed to obtain a gun if the three-day waiting period hadn't expired. In other words, the FBI would have determined that those 4,000 people, including Dylan Roof, should not have been given weapons. So with what little research we have, we know that measures like this are a start. The little research we have has been really, really important. And even though the federal government stopped funding the research for 20 years, a lot of private foundations, individuals, and even state and local governments have funded some of the research. So there's an extraordinary group of committed researchers looking at things like what's the difference between a three-day and a 10-day waiting period? What difference does it make in ultimate outcomes? These are all questions we can uh, answer. Mark Rosenberg, I give you the, you've got the final word of the show. We're really completely out of time. But thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. Uh, Justice Betty Dickey, what a pleasure to have you as part of the show. We're very grateful, Kevin Riley and I, that you would give us time to talk with us about this important subject. And Kevin Riley, of course, I always am happy to have you on the Thursday show with me. So thank you all for being with us. We are out of time. We'll be back tomorrow with another show. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and if you haven't had your vaccine, you can now make an appointment because everybody in Georgia can now get vaccinated. See you all tomorrow.